welcome, 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 darn chair expert. I'm Peaky fucking Bloinders, and I'm joined by another fucking Peaky Bloinder. You are, what's his name? Oh boy. <laughs> what's his name? A character name? Killian Murphy. Well, we didn't research name. this enough. I've forgotten all the characters. <laughs> I'm Tom. I'm Tom. Tom Shelby. Tom Shelby. I'm Thomas Shelby. And I'm and Grace Shelby. And you're Grace Shelby. And we have a very special guest today, Killian Murphy. Boy, did we fall in love with him with... He's going to fade out. We love Killian Murphy so much, we tried to play the theme song. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. We tried for like 20 minutes. If you didn't like it, sue us. Also, if you wrote that song, sue us, okay? Please don't sue us. Everyone sue us. Listen, Peaky Blinders. We're absolutely obsessed with Peaky Blinders. But we like Gillian Murphy long before that Batman Begins. Yes. Inception. He's so sultry. Oh, he is. Also more playful than we were expecting. Yeah. Because he is such a good dramatic actor. Good brooder. Yeah. We've got a new season of Peaky Blinders coming down the pipe. It's out June 10th. It's the sixth and final season. So listen, get watching now. If you've not seen Peaky Blinders, available on Netflix. Oh, I'm so jealous if you have Oh, I'm jealous of you. We're going to counter sue you, <laughs> Arm Cherry. So listen, start now. And then by the time it comes out on June 10th, you're going to be just at a fervor. You're going to be at a lather. You'll be in a deep lather Ooh. of excitement Ooh. for season six. This was a blast. Killian is fun and tremendously talented. So please enjoy Killian fucking Murphy. Don't you worry, buddy, because here he comes through the kiddos in the barrio and the barry and the slums. Sue us in court. His shadow is cast wherever he stands. We'll lose our houses to play this song. Okay, stop. We are supported by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So make sure you create stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. It's a must for your professional life and so easy to use. Just grab one of their designer-made templates or use the power of AI to generate something in seconds. Then add what you need. You can even pull images, graphs, and more from their massive library, and boom, you're done. I have a few friends who've used it for fun like invitations or itineraries and it does look so professional and nice yeah it's clean and classy and the best part you need zero design experience to get a really high-end looking product out of it and 90 percent of fortune 500 companies trust canva to help them get the job done get your work done and make it look good with canva start designing today at canva.com c-a-n-v-a.com designed for work we are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. 
outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken Menu at Taco Bell now. He's an Good afternoon. Is that what it is? Well, it's evening here. Yeah, evening. <laughs> oh, this is crack ass early for us. Ten a.m. Apologies. It's embarrassing for us. Where are you at? Are you in England or Ireland? I'm in Dublin. Yeah. Do you live there? I live in Dublin. Yeah. Mm. Oh my god. First of all, <laughs> we're super fans. Of yeah. Pinky. Yeah. Like, let's just start with us owning that. We're, we're awestruck. Oh, stop it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Have you ever lived outside of Ireland? You must have lived in London for a stretch or something. Yeah, we were in London for like 14 years. Both our kids were born there. And we only came back to Dublin in 2015, I think it was. Motivated by missing family or missing Ireland or hating London? I don't know. It's kind of an Irish story, you know, to move away, do your thing, and then come home. That seems to be a common narrative for Irish people. And then... We wanted the kids to be Irish, you know, and they were sort of at that age where they were pre-teens. They had very posh English accents and I wasn't appreciating that too much. So we decided to come back. <laughs> and, you know, we got parents are a certain age and it was just a nice time to come home. You've never lived in the United States. Never permanently. No, I've been there working and like lived in New York and California. The appeals of the sunshine are impervious to you. You don't care. You're not <laughs> lured by the sunshine. I love visiting and I love the food and I do love the weather. I don't know. I just feel European. You know, I just feel Irish. I feel like a bit of an interloper, I think, if I lived in California. I couldn't envisage living there permanently. I love to come and visit, though. Yeah, do your kids, they must like it, though. California? They haven't been there since they were, I suppose, little boys, but they did love it, yes. It'd be interesting to see what they thought of it now if we went back with them. Because this may shock you, but for us, even in the States, like I'm from Detroit, Monica's from Atlanta, California is still this like completely fake place, even if you grow up in the <laughs> States. It's like it's where every TV show you grew up watching is. People are at the beat. I guess people surf. Big Ferris wheel. <laughs> I think the thing that I struggled with when I went there as a young man and kind of wannabe actor or whatever, I struggled with the kind of monoculture a little bit. The fact that it was an industry town and that freaked me out a little bit that everybody was doing the same thing. Yes, so I agree with you. Virtually everyone you run into is in some tributary pursuit of show business. Is it the desperation that you're allergic to? <laughs> like, is it just like there's so many people who are like desperate for it? No, I don't think it's that. I think it's that I really enjoy not working. And when I don't work, I actually have nothing to do with the business at all. I just switch off and none of my close friends are involved. And so... I can just like totally switch off where I think if I was living in Los Angeles, you know, you're not working, but every day you're just everybody you meet is in the business. And I would find that a bit overwhelming, I think. And then there's this added like layer that everywhere you drive, there's huge billboards of other actors doing other things. So it's like, even, <laughs> even if you're someone who like makes an effort not to track what anyone's doing, it's unavoidable to not realize like, oh, Oh, right. Great. Good for them. Oh, wonderful for them. Look at this. <laughs> this looks great for them. Exactly. And it's great when you're on the billboard. But yes. <laughs> I'm with you. Now, I will say I have such little data to say this, but my father and I went to Ireland 
And we got talking with this gal, an Irish woman, and we were about to visit this like castle or something. I don't know. We were being tourists. And she said, well, you know, if you were Irish, you would jump over the wall. You want to buy a ticket. I said, oh, I vibe that. That's kind of our jam in Detroit, too. Like, just kind of do what you got to do. You don't have the means, so just fucking figure it out. I felt a real kinship with that attitude. That exists, yeah, because of the nature of our history, I suppose, the constant rebellions. But it's funny, during this whole weirdness and this pandemic and everything, Ireland has 93% vaccination. We are so obedient and good and responsible it's very interesting you're right it seems a little counterintuitive for a rebellious population but then we're very sort of forward-looking socially and very socially liberal for a country that was so repressed even 30 years ago and was controlled so much by the church there's been massive massive progress even in the last 10 years so ireland is a real contradiction of a country and i kind of love it for that Yeah, I love it. I'm going to say this. This is a weird thing to say. But again, on this same trip with my father, inordinate amount of handsome guys there. Like just an average guy I saw. I was like, man, these Irish guys, they're all pretty fucking solid looking. That's not an observation I think I've ever made in another country. I wonder what part of Ireland you were in so we could like attribute all the handsome. Well, Kelly and I went everywhere. I was on the uh, cliffs of Mohair. I was all through the South. Yeah, we were just driving around a car. We didn't know where we were going. My dad was sober. I was drinking heavily at every stop. Uh, I hadn't gotten sober yet. And I applaud him for being able to sit there and watch me get plastered. Yeah, we were all over the South, and it was so lovely. And again, I was just kind of overwhelmed with how strapping and good-looking all the men were. On behalf of Ireland, I'll take that compliment. You are the poster boy for it, I would say. Yeah, at this point. Well, there's a few other Irish actors who are doing okay. That Liam Neeson guy, he did all right. He did okay. He's Irish? He's Irish, right, Liam? Yeah. You got to be Irish to play Michael Collins. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's brilliant. My father and I on the same trip. My father was famous for falling asleep within five seconds of any movie. And Michael Collins came out while we were on this trip. And I said, oh my gosh, let's go to this movie theater and we'll see Michael Collins in Ireland. It's going to be great. Wonderful. Five minutes into the movie, he's snoring pretty loud, right? And there's a group of guys behind us and I can hear them. They're getting more agitated. So I keep waking him up. I'm like, yeah, we're going to get fucking rolled here. You got to stay awake. This is like really disrespectful. All right, all right, I'm on it, I'm on it. Falls asleep for the fifth time, starts snoring out loud. And I hear behind me, I'm going to fucking stop this motherfucker. Like, that's all of a sudden I heard stab in this motherfucker. And then I really violently shook him away. I said, we've either got to leave this theater or you got to stay awake to the end. And (laughs) did he? He made it. He made it. Yeah, he got his shit together and he he got through the end of the film. I guess, yeah, at the threat of murder. It's a good film, though. That'll wake you up. It's a great film. One <laughs> yeah. shouldn't sleep through it. Yeah. If you were raised Catholic, I imagine you were raised in Southern Ireland. Yep. I'm from Cork, which is right down the south. How big of a population does Cork have? How tiny of a town is it? Well, no, it's not that tiny. It's the second city. So Dublin oh. is the capital and Cork is the second city. By American standards, it's teeny weeny. Are we talking 400,000 people? Do we know? The reason I am not revealing the population is that I don't know. And I'm from Cork. And if anyone from Cork <laughs> hears this, they will go, I cannot believe he doesn't know the population of Cork. We just went through this of American cities, what we thought, oh, yeah, how big yeah. they were. And I 
didn't know anything, so that's fine. You guys aren't interested in population. That's, that's right. Fine. There's other things yeah. to think about. I think there's five million people in the whole country. So that gives you a sense. And I think there's one million in Dublin. And then there's like 13 million Irish in the U.S. Exactly. <laughs> Claim to be Irish, yeah. Oh, especially around St. Patrick's Day, boy. Even I'm Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Is that offensive or do you think it's adorable? I mean, it's lovely to be loved, isn't it? I mean, it was an actual fact of emigration. This did happen and without giving you a boring history lesson, but so many people left, and particularly for America. Yeah, because of the famine and everything else, but that did happen. So there are many, many people that do trace their roots back here. But again, from the outside, I'm not Irish and I'm not from there, but it seems flattering. So the whole country dresses in green. We drink green beer and eat green mashed potatoes. Like we get all in on it. Is that bizarre from your point of view, like back in Ireland? It is a little bit because do people actually know what they're celebrating? You know no, what I mean? they no. think it's leprechaun. Well, just a general love for the Irish, I think. Yeah, well, that's great. I'll take that. But I think it's probably not a very sophisticated view of Ireland and all of that. <laughs> Listen, it happens here, too. But everybody needs their sort of national day, don't they? It's only you in Mexico, and Mexico less so, for sure. Cinco de Mayo is now a big thing. That can be offensive to people, understandably so. But really, no one ever dons Lederhosen. There's no other national celebration of an ethnicity. So again, I don't know if it's really flattering or if it's like, what are you guys doing? We we're are not, we're technically, not we are appropriating. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever drink Beamish? Yeah, Beamish is from Cork. That's where I'm from. Yeah. Ooh. I went to Ireland with the sole intention to drink Guinness the whole time. Then I stumbled upon Beamish and I never turned back. It was Beamish the whole time. Beamish, especially in Cork, because that's where it's brewed. But it, yeah, it's a high quality stout. Beautiful. We couldn't find any in London. We were hoping for some. No, tricky to find in London. Murphy's is also a good stout, also from Cork. I mean, Guinness is kind of the king of stouts, but those two are also pretty tasty. I'm glad you brought up Murphy, and not just because it's your namesake, but yeah, that also is a very smooth stout. Real creamy. A little sweeter than Guinness. It is. You would have liked it more than the Guinness. Yeah, Guinness is a little much. Yeah, it's a it's full heavy. meal, right? I told her all the lore that it would raise your iron levels and you could subsist off of it in the <laughs> hospital if necessary. I don't think that's probably scientifically, <laughs> but it sure is tasty. Don't threaten Dax's doctor science cred. He'll fight you. Yeah, this is a lane I've carved out for myself that has nothing to do with show <laughs> business. It's armchair medical advice. Now, okay, I want to go to Cork and... Your father is a teacher. You would be like third generation teacher had you gone into it, right? Like the whole family's proliferated with teachers. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather, my mom's side was a headmaster. Both of them are retired now. My mom's a French teacher. Dad's an Irish teacher and a maths teacher. So aunts and uncles are teachers. So I knew 100% that's one thing I wasn't going to do. Did you want to show your like mates? I'm not afraid to fuck off. I don't care who's running this place, even if it is my family. What impact did it have having so many teachers about? Above you. Yeah, you're not wrong. I think I did act out a bit as a kid. Like when I was a little kid and then as a teenager, I kind of acted out like not in a really dangerous way or anything. It was just a bit of a messer, you know, and just causing trouble. I'd go to school and I enjoyed school, but then I would come home and my parents would give me extra like lessons at home mm. also. I got all the education. <laughs> 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 and so it was very well-meaning, but probably too much. It's like these people who raise their kids macrobiotic and then the kids just eat Oreos when they grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was too much. It tipped. It did. 
You started playing music at a young age. Did you have like a North Star at that time? Like, who was it that you thought was just the coolest and I want to pursue this as well? Or was it generated in another way? How'd you come into music? There was always music in the house. There was always music on. My dad is quite musical. And they used to bring us to like traditional Irish music sessions and pubs and stuff when we were kids. And then my dad had a lot of the Beatles' greatest hits. So I used to listen to the Beatles a lot. I'm still obsessed with the Beatles. They're my favorite, favorite band. And then I started playing guitar and drums and stuff when I was a kid and was in bands and I just loved performing. I loved being on the stage and not as an actor, but just playing music. I, I just loved it and I wanted to do it really. Were you shy in general or were you outgoing? Like was your persona on the stage a complete departure from what people would have guessed of you? No, I, I was pretty outgoing, I think. But you know, that thing where you're like, oh, yeah, but inside you're a little fragile. Yo, of course. Which I think you need to be as a performer. So no, I just loved music. You know, I was in bands from when I was very young and loved the camaraderie of bands and that shared humor and shared taste of music. And so we just practice and practice and practice. And that's all I wanted to do, really. How much older are you than your younger brother? Two years. So we're very, very close. He's kind of like my best friend. Oh, man, that's really lovely. My brother is five years older. It doesn't leave the door open for best friendship. And then Monica's little brother's eight years younger. Yeah, and we the, are not best friends. <laughs> the gap can be uh, insurmountable. Yeah, I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me. And like, so when I left home, she would have been eight. It's the same thing. It's almost like a generation, isn't it? Totally. And then only now are we both at the same level of life, which is adulthood. But even still, he's just entering adulthood and I'm really You're old. You're crushing it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> You're at the pinnacle of adulthood. <laughs> it's just weird to never be in the same place as your sibling in life. Yeah, it's a very different experience of life. And what role did he play? Like, what were your division of labor in the band when you guys were working together? <laughs> he's very talented piano player kind of jazz pianist and there was five of us in the band we were just really good friends and you have that dream of we're gonna get a record deal and and we got close actually we actually get offered a record deal and then we turned it down or our parents turned it down on our behalf okay because i read you turned it down and i was like i can't wrap my head around that being in my youth and not pursuing that that's a helpful part of the story that your parents had of oh well my brother was still in school so i was I don't know, 18 or something. And I'd left school and he was still in school. He was 16. The idea of losing two of us was just too outrageous and horrifying for them. So it didn't happen. And then everything just kind of fell apart then. But you know, in retrospect, I'm glad that that happened. I'm sure you guys know people in the music industry. It's just a terrible industry, unless you're super successful. It's really hard to make a living. And record companies don't really treat artists very well. I think I would have crashed and burned pretty quickly in that industry. You took your name from a Zappa song, which is intriguing to me as someone growing up in Ireland that you would have gravitated towards Zappa. Are you a Zappa fan? I am. Well, I like Hot Rats, I think is incredible. Me too. It's almost like going to the carnival or something, listening to that album. <laughs> yeah. There's a brilliant documentary out about him. It came out on Apple there recently. He was a very complicated, not altogether likable man, but uncompromising in his vision for his music. And like Hot Rats would be my favorite and probably his most accessible record. But people have this misconception of Zappa that he was hippie. Like he never took drugs, never drank. He only smoked cigarettes and drank coffee. He hated hippies, <laughs> like with a vengeance. Uh, and that's why that first record, 
we're only in it for the money. Everything, oh, that's a hippie record. He was taking the mickey out of uh, hippies and all that peace and love culture. You're so right. He was in such a niche niche that he created. He didn't follow any of the scripts of his contemporaries. And just fucking as authentic as it gets, though. I don't know where one just has that conviction about being that fucking out there. Exactly. And I think that's what I found really inspiring about him as a kid. And I still do. And I think you can separate the art from the artist. Yeah, me too. I could be wrong about the history. I haven't seen the doc, but there seems to be some implied integrity in that he often found things that bordered on working commercially, and he never then doubled down on what was working per se. Yeah, we had a couple of hits then in the 80s. Remember that Valley Girl tune? I think he just got bored with musicians because they would never just quite play the notes how he wanted them to be played. So then he went on to computers. He was one of the first pioneers of making music on computers. And then eventually he started doing all this really um, out there avant-garde orchestral music and stuff. He's a hero of mine. You said that when you're not working, acting, that you don't think about it, it's not in your life. But it sounds like music is still very much part of your life. Yeah. I guess because I am still <laughs> frustrated that it didn't work out. I find it very um, consoling music. How excited are you for this Peter Jackson Beatles thing? Oh, man. You cannot believe how excited I am. Me too. Are you going to have a Beatles night? You got to have like a Beatles night in your house. I want to eventize it because it seems yeah. <laughs> absolutely incredible. I watched a 60 Minutes segment about it this weekend. His conclusion that the entire narrative of the Beatles is erroneous that it was kind of fabricated for that film and that these aren't guys that are fighting and hating each other you know it's just very cherry picked it's so encouraging and then they yeah. get into the fact that it's even fucked up their own memory of it yes it's wild that is mind-blowing right yeah i think we have this really firm idea of what we think we experienced and then it's just so subject to so many elements it's shocking and imagine for those guys where are sort of part of the culture of the whole world. It must be very hard to distinguish from a picture or a poster or a film as opposed to your actual memory of the event or what happened and how you were feeling. And particularly for stuff that happened 40 years ago. I've had this several times where I go back to my parents' house and I'll be going through an old photo album of when I'm a child. And I'll have to admit that this memory I think I have is actually just a memory of this photo that I've been looking at for 40 years when I visit once a year. Have you had that experience? Oh, completely. And I think for our generation, when there was fewer photographs, so we poured over what documents of our lives there were. Unlike now, where there's just thousands of stuff in hard drives and clouds where we just pick the ones where we think we look most handsome or whatever, you know. Whereas <laughs> yeah. back then you just had the shot and it became huge in your memory, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's a fucking great point. I mean, I don't know how our children even go through these photos we've taken. This is too much. What is funny, to your point, I don't think my face ever looks good, but I am deleting photos that I'm not super vascular in, and then I'm keeping ones where you can see some veins. So were my kids to go through this curated childhood, they would have no other conclusion than like, dad was so veiny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you and I are roughly the same age. I think I'm a year older. Like the totality of photos of my entire childhood is maybe 45 pictures. Same. And then for my poor siblings, they got increasingly less. <laughs> Well, I was the younger, yeah. So there's probably like 200 of my brother and there's probably yeah. like 45 of me and there's like 15 of my sister. <laughs> yeah. But I think, and I know I sound like a grumpy old man now, but I think that's probably better than gazillions of photographs in a hard drive that would probably be obsolete by the time your 
children are 21 are trying to show it at their, I don't know, virtual reality 21st birthday party. I prefer to have an analog document that you could just go, look. Yeah. So anyways, back to the Beatles. So if I know how much my own story of my history is through these 45 photographs that exist in photo albums, yeah, those guys, McCartney and whatnot, they have all this footage of them as 20-year-olds. And, and there's no way that footage hasn't become their memories as well. And they must have so much memory as well. You know, all of those gigs, all of those albums, all of those people they met, there must be a lot of information for those guys to process. Have you experienced this where, like, you and I have had overly lucky lives. So the things that would have maybe stuck out for us at one point get dulled by, I don't know, going to the third Batman premiere in your life. Like, I don't know who's there. And the magnitude of it is so overwhelming. Let me just own my side. I have forgotten things that should be very memorable because of the dearth of super lucky things I've been a part of, maybe. So I can only imagine what their landscape is of their memory, because it's like, where would they start? I mean, you see pictures of them with like Little Richard and pictures with like Muhammad Ali. That was just like one day, maybe, in their life. Right. So they might have forgotten meeting Sammy Davis Jr. because they met Muhammad that day. Well, there's a famous meeting with Elvis where there's all these conflicting uh, accounts of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Like John has one account and Ringo has another account. And in some accounts, like they smoked a joint. In some accounts, they like played music together. It's interesting. It's like when you're an eyewitness to a murder. Oh, yeah. Eyewitness is like the most useless thing ever in a courtroom. Because four people who have seen the same thing will say completely different things. Something happens to our brains. That's why I've always been slightly suspicious of memoirs. Now, I think if memoirs are like diarized and someone has kept a diary for all of their lives, but I don't know. I remember I started reading Keith Richards' memoir who like I love the guy's an absolute legend, but how can you remember in that detail? (laughs) How is it possible? So therefore, the veracity or the authenticity of it was slightly, I just couldn't get through it. However, when I read the Dylan one, I thought, I bet you he kept like very detailed notes of all of this stuff. So I kind of buy that a bit more. It's very hard to imagine Keith waking up on time to get that journal entry in in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Given how much he was juggling at the time. I read that too, the Keith Richards, and I listened to books at night to go to sleep. And that one, it was useless. Like I stayed up till three in the morning because every story is a 10 in that book. It's so good. I'm sure it's hard at some point to separate your memory of a thing that's already twisted because it's so heightened. And then the press, what everyone has said about you and their idea of that memory probably seeps in and you don't even know. So you're also affected by other people's opinions of it without even knowing. Like, it's so strange. That's what they're saying happened in this Beatles doc is it was for story purpose. This is where the Yoko Ono rumor starts. This is where everything starts. Again, if you and I, Killian, were rehearsing for something for three months and someone recorded the whole thing and then they showed us the five fights we got into, we're liable to have forgotten the like 80 times we got along at Crafty. Yeah, and it shows you the power of editing, doesn't it? That first version that came out, they were all presented as just at each other's throats and there was all this other footage. But I think the reason that it was presented like that was to sort of explain the breakup. But it must be weird. Everything you do is mythologized. You wear a different hat. It's, (laughs) it must be crazy for those guys. Yeah, well, there's kind of a well-documented in the social sciences. Our nature as humans is to explain things after the fact. So it's like they happen, 
We can't really understand them, but man, we just keep working until we create a little story around it that feels satisfying. Like, okay, well, that was predictable in some sense. I have less anxiety about this world I'm living in because I figured out why that happened. Well, quite often you haven't really figured out why that happened. Okay, so I'm going to race through. So you were into music heavily. It was your life. You went to law school. You got the fuck out of there as quick as possible. And you start acting and you start acting on the stage and you end up touring with disco pigs on stage for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for about 18 months at the time you're on stage, are you like, this is it. This is all I want to do, man. I want to live on this fucking stage. And that's that. Or were you like, I want to do movies, TV, whatever it was. And I was definitely, this is the greatest thing ever. I want to keep doing this forever. I just love theater. I love all these people. Everybody is so interesting. I can stay up late. There's probably a free bar. (laughs) (laughs) So I had no other ambitions whatsoever. And I did theater for about four years exclusively, like no films or telly or anything. I think that's where I learned about acting just from doing it live and from looking at other actors and from working with good directors. It's a very steep learning curve when you're thrown out on stage and you just got to do it every night. Well, and you're getting like real-time data on whether you suck or not, which is so helpful. Yeah, and then you can absorb that and try things the next night or fix things and respond to the audience. I think it became sort of a surrogate or a replacement for the live music that I had to abandon because I was still doing something that had a live element to it. It had that intensity and that danger to it still. And are you the type of person who could enjoy fucking with it is there play and flexibility and latitude within even doing something for 18 months my favorite part of theater is the rehearsal the preview and then the opening night and after that you're just like trying to keep it good do you know what i mean and trying not to do what you just described which is really dangerous which is to go fuck this i'm gonna try something else and just (laughs) there's like a house of cards and everything the whole thing will start collapsing and i think when i was a young actor i definitely did that particularly in that first play I kind of was making it interesting for myself, but it wasn't being true to the story or to the character. And that's not your job. So you have to be really, really disciplined. And it's really, really hard to do play for a long time. I I don't really have the stamina to do it for a long time anymore. The last time I did one, I did it for maybe six weeks. That was hard enough. It's just a hard thing for your brain and for your psyche and for your creativity to repeat something. It's about precision. Yes, that's a skill set I lack. I flatter myself, you know, the orcas at SeaWorld, like the dolphins, they teach them a routine and they'll do the same routine indefinitely for those fish. The orca, even though they want the fish, after like four days of doing the trick, they have to give them a new trick all the time or they just won't even do any of it. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that. I'm the orca at SeaWorld. Like I just, (laughs) but I'm curious early on, if I'm on the outside and I'm looking at you, to me early on, I'm getting McDowell vibes. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering, like, Clockwork Orange, was that a movie you consumed? What did you think of McDowell? I just see a similarity there early on. That's funny you said that the first play I ever saw was an adaptation of Clockwork Orange for the stage. And I'd never been to a play before. And uh, it absolutely, like, blew my windows out. I couldn't believe how brilliant it was. I hadn't read the book at that point, but then I remember we brought Disco Pigs to Canada and Clockwork Orange was banned in Ireland. I don't know if it was banned in the UK as well. This is 25 years ago. But I remember I got my hands on a VHS copy of Clockwork Orange. That was big. So, I mean, I would take that as a huge compliment. I mean, he's an extraordinary actor, and particularly in that movie. And I guess that's the thing of being a young actor, isn't it? A little bit, you want to be intense and you want to go deep. 
that's what your instincts are. I don't know, I, particularly for young male actors, it seems to be that thing. There's a lot of like wanting to go as far as you can and everything. And I definitely had that. And it's a time in your life to set those sights as high as humanly possible. I think so. And I was attracted to those sorts of performances, I think, when I was a kid. Okay, great. So that's my question. Do you think you innately embodied that? Like, that's just the essence that you couldn't have escaped? Or did you see that you had a lane that you could fit in nicely in that you could do those kind of unhinged, is this person a psychopath? Do I trust them? Like, that's a rare skill set. And I wonder if you found it or it found you. The thing is, in the movies... If you do one thing well, the people that make the movies are so myopic yeah. that they want you to do it again. Yeah, I guess if you play a bad guy well, they'll want you to play a bad guy again. But I think if you're an actor, you, you, the whole point is you can play any range of characters. And that's what I've tried to do over the years. At any point, did you feel trapped? Like, I'm always going to be the antagonist. Did you have that fear at any point? There was a point, I think, when Batman Begins came out. This is like 2005 or something like that. And Red Eye, that was a sort of a fluke of distribution. I remember that movie came out and then Batman came out kind of the same year. But then I went off and I did this film, Breakfast on Pluto. And then I did this Irish film, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And so I felt that I immediately went to play different parts. And it's never really been an issue. Here's where you as a human being intersects with that so what i kind of deduce from that those decisions is like you had no pressure to support some crazy lifestyle like i can kind of learn a lot by the fact that you could step back from probably the minimally more profitable roles and just go do some things that you believe in doing like you must have kept your life small enough that there wasn't pressure to do otherwise yeah that's true and i went back and did theater all the way through all of making those films like we discussed at the beginning, I never really had any ambition to move Lockstock out to L.A. or anything like that. So I was always, yeah, just doing my own thing, the stuff that I enjoyed over here and working with people that I've always worked with over here. So, yeah, my life is very, very simple. <laughs> That's an advantage in this career. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be <laughs> Rob and I received some texts. Yeah, morning. I was locked out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> <sighs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dax today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dax. We are supported by Sleep Number. Oh, mattresses can be a pretty big purchase. It's kind of like a home. You and your partner have to shop around for one that you'll both love that's comfortable and suited to your preferences. 
Well, I'm about to make your lives a whole lot easier. Instead of hopping around from store to store, just check out Sleep Number Smart Beds. They're designed for you and your partner's ever-evolving sleep needs. When you see it, you'll know it's the one. I mean, this just changed the lives of my bride and I. The fact that we didn't have to compromise on the firmness of the mattress and the fact that it can evolve as we evolve is incredible. Sleep Number is great because it's all about what you need. You can adjust the firmness to your ideal settings on each side, perfect for couples. The smart beds respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night to help you sleep better. My Sleep Number is an 85. Whether you need something with more support or something to help quiet the snores, Sleep Number has you covered. So sleep better together with a Sleep Number smart bed. It's the only bed that lets you make each side firmer or softer whenever you like your Sleep Number setting. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. question this is going back to irish talk because when we had alicia vikander on we talked so much about sweden and like the national culture of sweden and how it differs and i do wonder like is there like a feeling there that's specific to the culture that we don't have oh it's a good question i mean it's a big question I don't know if I'm competent enough to answer. <laughs> I think Irish people are kind of naturally storytellers. I think there's an instinct to not do the designated thing. And for a small little country, the amount of music and writing and actors that have come out of this country is kind of astonishing. But I don't know. I don't really have the perspective on it because I live here, I suppose. At the risk of offending any Irish people, my kind of conclusion about the Irish is always in the wake of this kind of superpower with their thumb on you and some degree of looking at Ireland is that they were somehow less than and they still had this stupid Roman Catholic religion and they've not evolved. So there's like a bizarre classism against the Irish and the Irish who have so much pride, they said, hey, guess what? We don't give a fuck that you're looking down on us. In fact, we take great pride in the fact that we're the rough scrabble folks. And I find that's a very common theme in blue collar industrial pockets of the US. Yeah, I mean, that rings true. That's, <laughs> yeah, you could be talking about Ireland there for sure. All right, I wanna know because I'm gonna put him in maybe a three-way tie of directors I'm most blown away with, but you have this relationship with Nolan that has just carried on since that man begins. What is it about the relationship for you guys, if you could articulate it, that's a match? Well, I met Chris maybe 2004 or something like that. So it's a long time ago. Big year for you, by the way. You get married in 2004, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Marry your wife and meet Nolan. This is a big year. <laughs> <laughs> you probably remember this. When they were casting that, the Christian Bale Batman, everybody was going up to audition for Batman. And like for some crazy reason, I got to audition for Batman. Like it doesn't make any sense. So I got to audition for Chris for that. And we remember we met and we just got on really, really well. And he's so smart and so lovely and so sort of approachable. And we talked for hours about film and he's got this encyclopedic 
knowledge of film. And then I did this screen test and um, clearly it was always going to be Christian Bale's role. He was just amazing. He was made for it. I did something in the test that he liked and he, he gave me this other part and then called me up when he would make other films and I would turn up and he would always give me these nice parts. And uh, I really respect the way he works. I think he's a master, master filmmaker. I really admire his rigor and his dedication to the art of it. It's been a lovely relationship, professional and creative. Have you already shot Oppenheimer or that's forthcoming? Yeah, we do that next year. Did you read American Prometheus? Yeah, well, that's what it's, it's based off, yeah. Oh, it is. Okay, I read that last year. Oh, did you? What did you think? I fucking loved it. He's such a fascinating person. I mean, among the many fascinating things about Oppenheimer, and for people who aren't super up to date, he led the Manhattan Project. He was a physicist at Berkeley. But he had this weird mix as he was like super liberal at Berkeley. And then he kind of got on the war machine. And then he became kind of, not jingoistic, but it's certainly kind of a reversal of who he had been before. And yeah, I mean, I guess he was kind of independently wealthy. That was helpful. He lived this artistic life for a physicist. And I got to imagine it's a like a really awesome role to get, but then also perhaps a bit intimidating because he was so kind of contradictory and complex. Oh, it's perfect for drama. I mean, everything that you've just described, it's just made for a story. And yeah, I think that's the best thing about great characters is their contradictions. It's like cognitive dissonance. How can they hold these two completely contradictory thoughts or many contradictory thoughts in the one space? And, and he was a perfect example of that. And of course, this brain that was just unbelievable. The character, it's an absolute gift. And then, yeah, I am terrified about playing it, but I think you have to go into every role with an equal level of sort of terror and confidence <laughs> or else you're just going to make bland work. I think you need to be constantly challenged and standing at the precipice of something in order to make good work. Nobody cruises into good work, I think. Maybe Clint Eastwood? I don't know. Maybe there's a couple <laughs> throughout time. Bill Murray, maybe? Okay, you're so... destroying my argument. <laughs> no, but it's a good one. It's a very good one. Yeah, I think you do need a, that combination. This is how we describe alcoholics, is a megalomaniac with an inferiority complex. That's like the sweet spot for an actor. So you got to be arrogant enough to think you can do it and then terrified enough you think you're going to fail to work your ass off to do it right. Exactly. It's that sort of overarching self-confidence and that crippling anxiety. At the same time, they have to be balanced. <laughs> what a sweet recipe. I just have one how the sausage is made question about Nolan because I'm pretty obsessed with him. Is it tedious to be in his movies? Because they're so perfectly shot and so complex. I'll use an example that's not him, which is like, I also love Fincher. And I also know my own temperament. There's no way I could be in one of those movies. Like I couldn't do 90 takes or something. Back to the Orca thing. It would be really hard for me. <laughs> is the Nolan experience, is it real meticulous? He works fast, man. He, oh, he, he works fast. And I remember the first time I went on Batman Begins, like I was expecting this huge machine which it is at times but generally if we're doing a scene there's you and me and the camera and the boom and chris next to him that's it it's really really intimate and so i'd come from making little independent films and it felt like little independent film but on this huge scale now when he's doing the huge set pieces obviously there'll be multi cameras and all that sort of thing but for the most part it's all about the performance and he's right there beside the camera there's no video village or any of that stuff oh he's really just, None of that, no. And like he does move fast. You feel like he's hired you because he knows you can do this. And then he's got the whole film mapped out in his head so methodically and so precisely. It's really stunning to watch him work. Okay, now let's talk about Peaky Blinders because fuck, I wish I had it up on my phone. I have gone as Peaky Blinders to Halloween. No way. 
Yeah, we went to the horse races and everyone there, it was someone's birthday and that was the theme was Peaky Blinders and we all went. We're about as hardcore as it can get about Peaky Blinders. Oh, that's amazing. And I gotta say for me, I was only familiar with you and those bad guy roles. I even thought to myself, well, what's it gonna be like to root for this guy? And by the time you arrive at the pub, <laughs> like the beginning of the show, the way they shoot that horse and the ash falling, and the music and the whole nine yards. I mean, I don't know that I've been more firmly buckled into a character by his introduction as I was to Thomas Shelby. It's so masterful. It's so awesome and the world is so consistent and the tone is so wonderful. I wonder when you're acting in it, can you ever buy into the fairy tale? Like, can you ever feel like you're in post-World War One scrappy England? Can you teleport there at all during it? You can, I think, sometimes because the sets are so amazing and the locations are so amazing. But the real thing that is the foundation for all of the success of the show is the writing. He's a phenomenal writer. And, you know, the thing you said about world building, well, you know, he builds that world between the wars in Birmingham that nobody has any concept of what that would be like. They teach the wars, but not the bit in between. So the fact that he was able to conjure that up in words and in these characters that were all so broken and kind of destroyed, but you, you still feel empathy for them. It was a very clever thing to set the sort of before and after, thinking what would these guys have been like before they went to France? And then they come back and they're all suffering from PTSD and just self-medicating. And then you have this character who is clearly super intelligent and has this ambition and is this lack of fear of death. Yeah, yeah. So all you got to do really is lean into that writing and create the world that's on the page. I'm a firm believer that all of that good stuff comes from the script. I'm sure you'd agree with that. Well, yeah, I mean, Stephen Knight is incredible. I'm quite envious of the fact that you've worked with Danny Boyle and Nolan and you get to work with Knight. That's a lot of good folks to have worked with by 45, right? I feel very lucky, yeah. They're the real deal. I didn't know this, but I have since learned this, that Jason Statham was in the mix to play Shelby. <laughs> I think that might be apocryphal, but oh, it's a good story, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're always up for the same parts, me and him. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Even if that is apocryphal, you can see where that would have been something they would explore, because Thomas Shelby's like the baddest motherfucker in England. What I'm impressed with by you and happy about is that you played it in the way great tough guys have played it, which is you don't lean into it at all. I mean, the calmer you are when the shit's hitting the fan the more believable it is. And I would imagine it's tempting when you're like, oh, I gotta play the heavy in this show. Am I gonna act like this? Am I gonna gain 50 pounds? Was there any of those thoughts like, man, I gotta deliver on the tough guy aspect of this? Yeah, and I think that's probably where that Jason Statham story came from in some way, who, by the way, is amazing at what he does. Oh, yes. He's like Buster Keaton in a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing what he does. I think maybe they were slightly reluctant to cast someone who was not necessarily a physical specimen <laughs> like Statham is. But, you know, you kind of then have to do some acting, really. I think some of the best acting is silence. When you go, what the fuck is that guy thinking and then we worked a lot then on the sort of silhouette of the character and the hat and the haircut anything that could make me look a little bit tougher so it was a combination of things and then the accent i dropped the voice a little bit to make myself sound a little tougher well 
I agree with you a thousand percent that often the tough guy role is far more about your reaction to the adversary than it is about your attack towards them. Like that's where you learn how many times someone's been in the shit. When it's happening and I see your face, that's where I learn everything. It's not in what you said to the guy to, to elevate this tension. Did you ever watch The Wire? Yeah, yeah. So for me, The Wire is incredible. And I'm watching it as an acting nerd, right? So you've got all these really believable tough guys in it. I think Idris Elba is doing an incredible job as Stringer Bell. It's so impressive. But then we get in a scene with Michael K. Williams. And we see Michael talk to him. And even though the size difference is enormous, what you realize is like, Omar would kill this motherfucker. It's not like they declared a victor at the end of the scene. You just, you could feel by the reactions. Omar's amused by this guy posturing. And so likewise, I saw it in your show too, because I want to hear what you think about it. It's hard to be opposite Tom Hardy and not look like a clown. <laughs> and you had all these incredible right tats with him this is the unstoppable force in the immovable object. What was it like doing those scenes with Tom? Well, every series, there's a few of those great two-handers that are, again, written exquisitely, but becomes like a piece of theater. We cross-shoot them generally, which I think is always important. So it's not like your take, my take. So therefore, we can react in camera to each other the whole time. And then sometimes you get like 20, 25-minute takes. So there's total concentration when you have an actor like Tom, it makes it really exciting to be in the room with him. We just kind of let loose. And I've known Tom for a long time now, so we have a kind of an understanding and it always works really well. And exactly as you said, they're so sort of diametrically opposed in their energies Tommy and Alfie. Therefore, I think that's where they work well together in a scene. Yeah, you're like this sage wolf and he's like a wolverine. Yeah. This is so geeky and dumb and my obsession with masculinity, but the fact that you guys are so equal in those scenes, I find just highly impressive. I think it had to be all the way, like without giving anything away, Tommy shoots him in the face at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and he still comes back and he's still equal. That was a bit of a spoiler. Apologies. Well, he died of syphilis on the show? No comment. Okay, okay. <laughs> We're not allowed to say, I guess. <laughs> Well, Tom Hardy died in like season three. I know, but he doesn't want to give anything. No, that's, I respect that, but I'm remembering it was syphilis. Maybe, though. They left him pretty open. Oh, my God. Okay, so he could come back from the dead, perhaps. <laughs> the only thing I can compare this to maybe is like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where you've been on this show now for eight years, but it's six seasons. What's it like to work on something for that long? What's it like to be in that haircut for that many years? <laughs> Which is so cool at the beginning, but I could see at some point you'd be like, all right, I'm ready to not have this haircut. <laughs> well, the thing is, we actually started shooting that at the end of 2012, and the sixth series will come out in 2022. So that's a decade. So it's a long time. And I still haven't quite processed it. I think on when it's actually finished, maybe I'll process it. It was like being in a really violent boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unique thing to get old with the character, to see yourself get old on screen and then to kind of have your life develop. And then, well, Tommy Shelby's life develops in a far more interesting and dramatic way than mine. But we were able to explore some of the middle-aged shit that happens to particularly men when they start realizing that they're losing their power, losing their masculinity, losing their potency, all of that stuff. And then, of course, it's it's a bit of a family in terms of the actors and some of the actors that started on that show 
It was their first job out of drama school and now they're really established, successful actors. I've been able to do other bits in between, which has been nice. If I was only doing that show, I think maybe I would have a different attitude towards it. But it has been a real gift, you know. I was on a show once for six years and prior to doing the show, I didn't want to do TV because what I loved about movies is going away and it's always novel and I think about it for three months, then it's over, I get to think about something new. But I came to find out I am a factory worker at heart. Like I did love going to that lot for six years and knowing the guard and like that became a part that you don't generally get to experience as an actor you've been with the show for 10 years that's like a career in some other field it's really unique and by the end of the six years were you glad that it was over then yeah it was this great mix of like i'm gonna miss this so much i know it won't get better than this and yet i'm now ready of course to see what's next yeah i think that sums it up for me too is this the last season or we don't know? This is the last season. I mean, Steve Knight is talking about a movie. I think that would be interesting if there was a film. It's the end of it in this form, for sure. It's kind of rare in British TV to do six seasons, isn't it? Like, you couldn't have been expecting this. No, I mean, it started off as a tiny little show on BBC Two. It was only commissioned for one series, and then the second series came along. And I think it was really when Netflix picked it up and it went global that uh, it sort of started to snowball but it never had any advertising it was mostly the fans generated the interest the fans generated the kind of love for it well we hosted birthday parties in the theme <laughs> we posted pictures you know we did everything we could yeah exactly and thank you <laughs> uh, 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 uh. you're just telling so much story over that many years did you ever worry like well Obtaining power is fascinating. The climb is fascinating. The struggle is fascinating. Who are we when we're on top? What does that do to things? And that can be said for us as individuals too, like in real life. Like it's a little dangerous to get to the top of the mountain. Yeah. What did you think about that as an actor in it? Like, how do I set my sights on something when I've peaked, I guess? Yeah, well, that is this sort of classic story arc for those gangster shows, isn't it? Starting off on the streets, going legit, achieving power and having all the wealth and all the material wealth. And then I think what Steve did very well was he kind of made the story um, internal. He put a lot of it inside Tommy's head. So it was the dealing with that. And it was with the stuff that he had never addressed over the course of his life that kept coming back to bite him in the ass. I think that's very clever. So it's very much about Tommy's demons. There's obviously all these enemies that he has to deal with physically, but Steve does a very clever thing as well, where he interweaves real life historical events into the narrative of the show. So we had a rise of fascism in Britain. Yeah. He wove that into the show, which is really clever. So then Tommy's sort of battling with the sort of an ideology as well as everything else. So he's just a very, very clever writer. And I think that's sustained it also it isn't a, a room of writers. He's written 36 hours of the show, one writer. Get out. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's written every single script. Exactly, yeah. Here's the other thing. We always get the fully finished six scripts before we start shooting. Oh. Because, you know, you talk to your friends that work on television shows and they say, oh, well, we had episode one and two and then we just set off. That to be, I can't even imagine that. We always have fully finished six episodes. Oh, I've acted scenes that the scenes had been written, but the script wasn't written. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It would make me feel... Like, very unwell, the idea of that. <laughs> it is interesting. You're in a movie paradigm or you're in a TV show paradigm. And then you're in some hybrid, as many of these, like, limited series are. It's this weird hybrid, which, yes, generally if you do a movie, you're going to chart out where you're going to end. But TV, weirdly, is you're kind of living in the present. You don't know where it's going. I don't know if my character is going to get a disease or I'm going to get divorced. And there is something 
interesting that you have to find a confidence in yourself that like off story i'm still interesting or off yeah. big trajectory i can still find why this is worth me caring about it's a challenge yes it is but that's why i think the little details become more interesting with the characters as they go on it's their weaknesses and their desires and the stuff that you could never really explore in a film it's not really enough time for that, is there? But you get it in a novel. And they don't, they say they're kind of like the novels of television, these long running shows. You can go off into the detail of a, a minor character and follow them on a path. And that becomes fascinating. And they say that about movies, you know, the best writing in movies, you, you'd want to spend time with all the supporting characters. They could all have their spin off. And I, I think that's true. There's also some element, and this is just me being a total fan and a geek, and I want to ask some geeky questions, which is, the art was also simultaneously imitating life a little bit in that your show, as you just described on BBC Two, no one's betting on that. For season one is very much Peaky Blinders. It's the gang Peaky Blinders, this little shit family group. They're not powerful. The show becomes a phenomenon and I can almost feel it as the family, the Peaky Blinders organization is gaining power, not in a bad way, but in a accurate way <laughs> you mean in the performances yes like there's a little bit of pizzazz <laughs> in some of the subsequent seasons that matches perfectly with the rise of them and the rise of the show that's a very interesting observation i think it's probably to do with gaining confidence going oh people actually find this interesting and they're really into it and then you can be a bit bolder and a bit more ambitious and a bit bigger in the storytelling. I think that probably definitely happened. Like even in the soundtrack, you know, all of a sudden we got all these people wanting to be on this soundtrack. So it did definitely gain confidence. I hope the story and the performances kept up with that. Well, it wouldn't work if the family was getting more and more disenfranchised and they were getting more and more cocky. But the fact that the family is succeeding, to me, it all maps perfectly. I had never been able to look at it from that perspective, I guess, because I'm so in it. Yeah. In fact, I feel bad for you that you're in the show because it's so great. <laughs> I know, but nobody likes looking at themselves. I can't watch it at all. You can't. No, although I became a producer on the show, so therefore I have to watch the cuts. And that's been an exercise because it's allowed me to begin to watch the bigger arc of the thing, not just yourself. I think it's so helpful for an actor to either become a producer or a director simply because you can understand in a way you can as an actor that the global story is as important as you being true in the moment. So I think our instinct is a fight for the moment and then the directors and producers are fighting for the overall story. It's great to find out that both have their place. That they're both worth fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. I find myself saying way less like, my character wouldn't drink coffee at this time. <laughs> are you easy going on set? Or are you like, no, Thomas doesn't drink out of round glasses. Oh, I don't know. you Because I've played him so much, I trust what he would do. Like, for example, there's, there's something that happened on the show. He never, ever, no morsel of food passes his mouth over 36 hours. I think we got into season two and then we realized that he had never eaten. So then we made a thing <laughs> of it where he, he's, he'll sit down at a meal, but he never consumes anything. He'll drink whiskey and smoke cigarettes, but that's it. I think he eats a little bit of mint in one. <laughs> <laughs> You're the opposite of Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> Brad Pitt loves eating, yeah. And he makes it look great. He sure does. He yeah. always looks amazing doing it. You want to eat whatever he's eating, even if you're allergic to it. You're like, give me one of those. He <laughs> yeah. looks awesome eating that. <laughs> well, Gillian, it's been so awesome to chat with you, and I'm so excited about Oppenheimer. Do you know where you're going to film that? 
I'm not sure. I'm sure they'll tell me and I'll turn up. <laughs> that might be something I try to crash, like just try to show <laughs> up and watch you guys work. Because It's kind of a confluence of my favorite director, a story I love, you as an actor. It's a very exciting proposition. Oh, well, thanks, man. I have one last question. I know you are largely quite private, but I am the father of two girls, which I fucking love. Thought I wanted boys. So grateful I had girls. What is it like to be the father of two boys? Because they're getting to an age where they're getting probably close to your size. Yeah, they are. They're getting taller than me now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that wouldn't be that hard, though, in fairness. But um, it's great, man. They have the same age gap that me and my brother have. So it's nice to see them just being brothers and being pals. They're 16 and 14. You, know, you speak to them and you exchange uh, preferences and opinions and talk to them about music and movies and things, and they tell you things that you might never have known about. That's really a nice development. Oh, yeah. You know, how old are your girls? Six and eight. And I have to say, of the many delights in life, number one is watching them be kind to each other. I don't know what it is about that experience. Like, I can just watch them when they're getting along really well indefinitely. It's just like the most comforting feeling. Like, oh, God, I guess maybe out of fear, maybe. Like, I just pray they'll always look out for each other. I won't be here forever. And just something so comforting to know that they've got a buddy that they can count on. Yeah, so it's two years again, yeah. No, my lads definitely kicked the shit out of each other qu quite often when they were younger. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's boys. But uh, no, they're, they're great pals now. Are they musicians? No, they appreciate music. Was there anything you were trying to foster in them? Like mine is, I want my daughter to be a Formula One racer because I always wanted to race <laughs> and I didn't have enough money, so... How's that working out? She rides a dirt bike incredibly. She drives an off-road razor. We're wow. maybe going to start karting soon. Yeah, we're approaching that. It's still a possibility. It is, it is. She's getting long in the tooth. You should be racing go-karts by seven, but we'll see oh, if she really? can. <laughs> yes. Like all these guys, Lewis Hamilton, all of them, they all started at like six or seven. Wow. Do you have anything you hope to support them in because you desired it? This is such a cliche, but I just want them to be happy, you know, and confident kids. That's all. And to know themselves, I think that's the most important thing. And they're heading that way. They're good boys. But I try not to project my stuff onto them. I try not to do that. It's impossible not to do it entirely, but just let them find their own way. It's so tempting. I don't know about you and your wife, but my wife and I have identified which one's most like ourselves. And then so, <laughs> yes, I just start like, oh, I know how to help this person because we're so similar. And maybe we're not nearly as similar as I think. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think when we add kids, you know, you think, oh, it's, there's one like me, one like you. But in fact, there could be one like your wife's grandfather. You can skip generations. They can. It doesn't necessarily come directly from the source. You're so right. Yeah, you latch on to these three things you observe are similar, and then you build this like 100-point plan that they're identical, or I'm tempted to. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Well, it's been so wonderful talking to you. I'm waiting with bated breath for the new Peaky Blinders, early 2022. I hope that's on the early, early side of 2022. I don't want to be waiting long. I don't make these decisions. We'll find out. They're not having you do the scheduling, huh? <laughs> well great meeting you killian yeah thanks guys this has been so fun i hope i bump into you in real life that'll be lovely i'll see you on the oppenheimer set <laughs> yeah cool <laughs> see you then stay tuned for more armchair expert if you dare and now my favorite part of the show the fact check with my soulmate monica padman 
there's a real-time pitch to you and Wob. Okay. Okay, so here's my idea. I got it while I was getting a massage mm. at a hotel. Okay. This did not happen to me. I want to be very clear. This did not happen to me. I was seeing a lot of uh, old boys around the pool, and they were with their wives. And I was thinking, hmm, these guys definitely take a bunch of Viagra on these weekends. Mm. Safe to guess. Okay. Okay, so then I was getting my massage, mm -hmm. uh huh. And I was thinking, what if one of these old boys was like all banged up on Cialis and Viagra, and he was laying there and just became a hundred percent erect while having a massage? It's probably, I'm sure it happens. It must happen on these weekends at these nice hotels. I'm sure it happens regularly in massages. I think though, well, I guess maybe a lot of this is informed by the commercials that I see, Cialis commercials, like an old old boy and old gal, and they're like in a tub. And it looks like they're at a resort. Uh -huh. It looks like it's like made for a lover's weekend. Uh-huh, sure. So I just imagine in that hotel, all the old boys are really jacked up. Here's the point of all this. This is my pitch to you guys. You can say yay or nay. But we pose a question. We think of a fun thing that could have happened or not happened. We pose it on Monday. People email if that's happened to them. Okay. And then we do a mini episode on like Wednesday where we talk to two or three people that have had really weird experiences. Arm cherries. Sounds better on like Friday, but. Yeah, the day Monday is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's just you get out in the fact check the question and then you find out if this has happened to anybody and then we screen a few people and then we get on a Zoom and we, we hear the story. We could, we I'm could, like, interested. There might be like a million great stories just laying out there. Yeah, I guess my skepticism is how will we know they're being honest? I think you can tell. I like that idea. I like that idea. It'd be a really fun way to interact with arm cherries yeah. and hear really funny stories. True. Or they don't even have to be funny. Some of them could be scary. Oh, pop out? Yeah, like when you tell one of your stories, yours always sound like it's about to get real life or death, but they don't. They could. They could. That's yeah. right. They're big on the could and not on the wood. <laughs> okay, I like that's this. a thought. So, so if, today's is a weird masseuse story. Yeah, no, maybe we're this, starting maybe this now. Worked. I think so. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. Who knows? There's no promises being made. But okay. If you've had an embarrassing situation where you're like, oh fuck, I'm on way too much Cialis and Viagra and what other options there are for ED. And all of a sudden, I'm fully erect, and I'm embarrassed. I don't know what to do. I don't want to hear anything gross. I don't want to hear of anyone, uh, you know, putting a masseuse in a. It would almost be better if it's male on male. It's like the dolphin thing. Okay. I don't give a fuck if a male masseuse has to see a boner. Right. 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 That's we don't care. true. That's okay. true. Okay. Great. Okay. Male on male. Male on male massage. Uh oh. I'm fully erect. Okay. What happens next? Okay. All right. Putting it out there. And then it, are they going to comment? Well, I'm going to have to create an email during this fact check that we okay, great. tell people to email. Okay, great. Okay. great. We're going to give it a go. Okay. I'm going to say one thing to alleviate your concern, which is a very valid one. Don't fucking make a story up. Don't be an asshole. Yeah, please that? don't. Just don't be an asshole. It'll be so much more fun for everyone if you're not an asshole and you only report something that's real and true. Okay. Okay. That I was like a that. caveat. I like that. Killian. Killian Murphy. He'll kill you with his face. <gasps> Killian Murphy. <gasps> Murphy is a ding, ding, ding for Interstellar. Oh, it is? Was that someone's name? Yeah. Was that was that his name? No. Oh. <laughs> what was his name? Cooper. Cooper. Hey, it's Coop. Yeah, Thinking they Thinking about Coop. heading up to space. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what was I fixing again? I forgot. The world was ending. Yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> go up to space and take a peek, look around, do a dance, maybe yeah. spin backwards, fix this. Okay, you're being patient. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay, Cooper and Duger. Uh, and Murphy. Murphy. Murphy was the girl. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Murphy. No. Okay, Killian. So we talked about industry towns, mm. how L.A. is an industry town. Yeah. And then I looked up 10 iconic U.S. Oh, this could be fun. U.S. cities by industry. Okay, well, right now you, you and I both know five of them for sure. Okay, tell me. Manhattan, what is it? New York City. And what's the key industry? Finance. That's right. Easily, we go to Detroit. We know that. Hold on, let me look. You want look. you to say it. Don't look. Detroit. It's there. But you don't have to look. I, I have want, to check. But you know. I want you to demonstrate you, how much you know. Oh, you yeah. want me to be confident? Yeah. Okay. Detroit. Automobile. Boom. San Francisco. San Francisco. All right. How about, yeah, San Francisco. I don't know the industry there. I'd say tech. We'd have to oh, include duh, God. Silicon See, Valley. See, this is why. <sighs> well, I could be wrong, but I think I would that's imagine that's probably that on was. here. I'm sure. Okay. Yep. San Francisco technology. Oh shit. Seattle. Coffee. Well, that's a good one. I'd say aerospace. Oh, Boeing. Oh wow. What is, is Seattle on there? Yeah, manufacturing, actually. Oh, interesting. Great. Good job. You could have also done tech there, Microsoft. And right. Or coffee. Mm, yeah, Starbies. They had so many coffee shops when we were there. Yeah, a lot of Starbies. Um, what, anything else? <laughs> oh, yeah, let's keep going. We know Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood. Xanthem gum. <laughs> Got that needle eater xanthem gum. By the way... Kristen's got some project loosely. She read a short story. It had to do with a sim. Mm. And then Kristen said there should be a moment that both people know. Like there's this is a big clue there in a sim. And mm. the writer said maybe both characters sing Xanthem gum. Nuh-uh. Yes. So they listen to our show. Yes. That's sweet. Isn't that great? Oh, my God. And what an amazing example of simulation. That's so, Xanthem so great. Gum. I thought about that the other day. That was impossible. That's not possible. If we need to remind people what happened. Yeah. It was like, you said you had been singing. And I said, oh, my God, what are you singing? I want to hear. You said, I won't. Yeah. Then you said, <laughs> I'll just tell you it's about Xanthem gum. Uh-huh. And then I hung up. <laughs> and then I called you back five minutes later and I said, Is this the song? Xanthem gum, ba da 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 xanthem. And you fucking, it, it wasn't even fun for you. No, you it was thought scary. I hit a microphone in your apartment or I had tapped yeah, into your Sonos, Sonos or I had hacked your TV. Like it was too much. Because it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay, another city. Okay, another city. Orlando. What are you gonna, oh. Don't look, don't look. But it's not on here. But you know what Orlando's bread and butter is. Theme parks. Yeah, tourism. Tourism. Tourist town. <laughs> okay. St. Louis. St. Louis. Beer. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. And then Milwaukee. This one's harder for you. That could also be beer, Milwaukee. I don't know Milwaukee. Harley Davidson. But oh. Okay, anyway, so now let's hear the real one. Okay. I thought that could be fun. Okay, New York City, finance. You got that immediately. Uh <laughs> 
This is a phone. Boston Education Services. Of course. Mm -hmm. All those great, great colleges. This was a big oversight. D.C. D.C. federal government. Mm, that's the Chicago. ultimate Chicago. See, this one, I was thinking about this one. Let's let's let Wabi Wabi. Well, he's already on his computer. Do you just I'm, look it up, you it. fucking cheat? No, 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 no. <laughs> I didn't have this email. Address. Okay, what would you say Chicago's industry is? <laughs> um... I just want to say pizza, but that's not right. Well, they do the futures there, right? Is that where the futures exchanges? Uh, okay. What Finance, is also. Finance, okay. Financial services. But I just remembered another one. Is Nashville on there? Okay. No. I think Nashville's insurance. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Okay, sorry. I keep derailing No, this. no. Okay, Chicago, financial services, Detroit, automobile, manufacturing, Houston. This was interesting. I didn't know this. Oh. What would you guess? I would never be able to guess this. Hold on, hold on. Oil. Good job. Thank you. Refining. Really good job. Crude petroleum and natural gas extraction. Okay. Wow, I'm impressed. San Francisco technology. Okay. Las Vegas. <sighs> technology. <laughs> Gaming, tourism. Tourism and casino hotels. Man, you're mm -hmm. good at this. Los Angeles, motion picture and video oh. production. Capital S. Seattle. Manufacturing. And that's all. That was fun. You did a great mm. job. Thank you, did thank you, thank you. Great job. Me, great. not so much. And what would you say for Atlanta? Beverages. Um, Beverages. Not beverages, really, Beverages, only, oh, but mm, not really, because yeah. if there were multiple. Right. But it's just Coke. Cola. I don't think it has one specific. Music, big music yeah, scene. That's true. Oh, Nashville, all the oh, music. Yeah. And country music country specifically. Country fucking music. Specifically. Okay. He said that Ireland has a 93% vaccination. Maybe at the time we talked that that's true. It's right now 81.4%. Well, couldn't have gone down. Why? Because maybe For boosters included after that. Huh. I just don't know how you go from 91% vaccinated down to 81. A ton of babies. But if... <laughs> Seven. But if they're counting... 000. That is a tricky statistic, people. So one is a first shot number, and uh -huh. then another number's, you know, boosters. complete. Or even second shot and then boosters here. There's three shots here. Right. So your number might be, I don't know, completed and his was first shot. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the population of Cork, Ireland... Is 190,384. That's a good chunk. It's something. That's a lot of colas. <laughs> Everyone's drinking two a day. <laughs> By the end of the week, you'll be looking at 2.8 million colas. What? I wrote that down, but it's wrong. This is saying 124,391. Oh, okay. Big discrepancy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> St. Patrick's Day. We oh. talked about St. Patrick's Day because he was saying, I don't know if people really know what it means, what it is. What is it? Okay, let's talk about it. Yeah. This is on history.com, trusted brand. Very trusted. St. Patrick's Day is celebrated annually on March 17th, the anniversary of his death in the 5th century. Who is his? St. Patrick. Correct. <laughs> but who is he? <laughs> he chased the snakes out of Ireland. 
Who was St. Patrick? Here there we go. There he Whew. is. St. Patrick, who lived during the 5th century, is the patron saint of Ireland and its national apostle. Born in Roman Britain, he was kidnapped and brought to Ireland as a slave at the age of 16. He later escaped, but returned to Ireland and was credited with bringing Christianity to its people. Mm. In the centuries following Patrick's death, believed to have been on March 17th, 461... Wow. The mythology surrounding his life became ever more ingrained in the Irish culture. Perhaps the most well-known legend of St. Patrick is that he explained the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, using the three leaves of a native Irish clover, the shamrock. Oh, well, that's interesting. happy shamrock. Uh, more than 100 St. Patrick's Day parades are held across the United States. New York City and Boston are home to the largest celebrations. Does it say anything about chasing the snakes out of Ireland? Okay, I got to do some Just more like research Saint, on I'll that. I'll do St. Patrick and then snakes. Will you do that, Rob? Just, uh, Just double check. Oh, you're, already, you're too busy creating an email? I'm done. Now. Okay, you've already completed that. And task. what is it? So it's going to be stories at armchairexpertpod.com. Great. Stories at armchairexpertpod.com. Stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S, at armchairexpertpod.com. Com. Let's do subject massage or something like that, and then let's give a deadline as well. Yep, massage, and you got to get it in today because we got to move fast. Okay. Yeah. Great. And just give us, you know, a, a brief four or five sentences of what happened. Great. Oh, also in the so let's get all this shit out of the way now. In the email, say I grant you the right to record me, and we will set up a Zoom. Great. Yeah, that should cover our asses legally, right? Yeah. <laughs> Patrick is depicted with his foot on a snake. Okay. Wait, did you? Is that real? <laughs> That's what I heard. Yeah, really you was. really heard that? He stood atop an Irish hillside and banished Wait, snakes from Ireland. Why did this just happen, you guys? I just opened up my phone and I didn't type a thing. I didn't say anything. What is it? I can't see from here. Patrick depicted with his foot on a snake among the legends associated with St. Patrick's. He stood atop Irish Hills. I banned the snakes from Ireland. Computer connected, maybe? (gasps) What? Oh, because that's my account. I'm on on Chrome with my email, so it shouldn't. What the fuck? Ew. Fuck. Look at that. I didn't do shit. I opened my phone. And that's what you're looking at? No, I'm not. I'm on Google. Safari. What am I at? Oh, did you eat? No, did you no. email this? I mean, what I'm, is happening? No, I'm on the internet. And it says St. Patrick's Snakes. Whoa. Maybe I said I'm going to Google uh, maybe St. Patrick's Snakes it or something. But I have Siri off. Mm. Holy shit. I thought you were making that up about snakes. No, he says he banished snakes from Ireland. It doesn't say that on history.com. Prompting all serpents to slither away into the sea. Well, I've been to Ireland. I didn't see any snakes, so. I should go there. I hate snakes. Yes, particularly the ones that make a home in your bottom. <laughs> yeah, I don't like those especially. Does Guinness raise your iron levels? Oh. Guinness has 0.3 milligrams of iron mm. per beer, mm. which is about 3% of an adult's daily recommended iron intake. Oh, that's great. You only need to drink 33 to have 100% of your iron. That's right. Your Ireland. <laughs> your Ireland. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That wow. was exciting. Okay. Zappa. That's a shoe store? No. Oh, oh, Frank Zappa. Yeah. So you yeah. guys kept saying Zappa, and I was like, don't know, don't know, going to check later. And that's right. Frank Zappa, American musician. You know, I don't know him. <laughs> 
If you want a great introductory album to check out, Hot Rats. Hot Rats, it's I incredible. see it right here, 1969. Oh my God, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> wow, he has four children. They're named Moon. Ahmed. Ahmet. Yeah, Ahmet. Dweezil. Yeah, oh my God, why do you know this? And, wait, Moon, Dweezil, Ahmet, and... Oh, what's the fourth one? Diva. Oh, I didn't know Diva. I'm... How did you do that? <laughs> What's all? Yeah, well, the fucking sim is frying everything. Well, that with the computer yeah. thing, and, and now, now you're, you're saying reading something weasel. that came out of my brain. <laughs> oh, I'm so scared. I know I'm at. And you know Dweezil? I don't know Dweezil, but I know of Dweezil and Moon. Moon. It's actually Moon Unit Zappa, right? Do you guys hang out? No. <laughs> yeah, Moon Unit. Oh, that's great. Wait, but how can <laughs> but how can you remember a, a, a kind of random person's I I brothers and sisters' name? I was a Zappa fan, but like I got the album Hot Rats thirty years ago, maybe twenty eight years ago, and at some point I found out his kids' name were Dweezil, Moon Unit, and Amet, and I didn't realize Diva. Oh my God! Oh. <sighs> I'm shocked. You're shook. <laughs> you're shook. I can't believe it. I like when you say you're shook. I'm shook. <laughs> Are you scared? Yeah. You're sad. There's a lot of emotions coming up right now because I knew Moon Unit. Well, that you don't know stuff like that. No? Well, You don't today know do. people's names ever. When you name your kid Moon Unit, I'll probably remember it. If someone names their kid Shitstick Smith, like, I don't know, who's Adam Smith, the economist, if he named his kids Shitstick, <laughs> I'd probably just need to hear it once. Listen, can we just be real that you you have a hard time remembering people's names? Names, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, we've talked about that on yeah, here for sure. That's not a bad thing. It's just a quality about you. So the fact that you know Frank Zappa's children's names. <laughs> it's weird. Is yeah. weird. Yeah. I'll I don't even know Matt Damon's children's names. Nor I, but I know David Bowie's kids kid's name zoe bowie oh wow one of the first zoe's I in think. the world <laughs> well there was the zoe in the salinger yeah that's right but other than that zoe bowie Waylon jennings kid shooter jennings oh. great name shooter so it's mainly about if they're unique names yeah and i like them musically i'm probably somehow know their kids names oh wow i'm not finding that david bowie's daughter's name is zoe well look harder <laughs> Alexandra, Zahara Jones, and Duncan Jones. Maybe it's Alexandra goes by Zoe. Also, how you spelling Zoe? Um, well, Google corrected it to Z-O-E. Try Z-O, like okay, Bowie. So Duncan, Zoe, Haywood, Jones there we go. is your son. I accept your apology. <laughs> <laughs> I accept it. <laughs> okay, moving on. Okay. Clockwork Orange. Ah, uh, sure. In 1973, Kubrick himself, disheartened by continuing protests, bans a clockwork orange in the United Kingdom. Because he was wondering if it was banned there. Oh, this is sad. Uh -oh. The rape of a Dutch girl shortly thereafter uh -huh. at the hands of men singing, quote, singing in the rain, as Alex does, convinces many that Kubrick's decision was wise. Mm -hmm. What do they call They call that something. Censoring. Well, sure, sure. But when people mimic a crime, they call that something. Oh. Right? A copycat killer. Yeah. Yeah. CCK. Copycat killer. Ooh, that'd be C -C a cute nickname for you. 
I'm the copycat killer. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So maybe that's Megalith's big rival. Nemesis is copycat killer. Okay. Jason Statham for Peaky Blinders. You thought he was in the running. Okay. And and he said no, he didn't mm. think so. Okay. Uh, and I don't have confirmation. One way or another. Yeah. I, I didn't get Statham in touch with him. Yeah. What a physique, Jason Statham. It is so good. And if you're listening, Jason, I'd argue it could be even a micron better if you swing on into Dan Gaines' ethos <laughs> over at the hashtag Black Mold Paradise. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when did Lewis Hamilton start carding? Mm. It says here 1993. Okay. And he was born in? Well, let me guess. Yeah, I guess. He started karting in 1993. I'm going to say he was born in 1987. No, 1988. 85. Oh, he was a late carter. That's why I wanted to check it. Because you were saying that everyone has to get in really young. Yeah. I think Max was karting at four. Let me find out. Verstappi. Max Verstappi. That motherfucker was racing in Formula One at 16. Dang. Sheesh. (laughs) He was bussing on that cart. Whoa, okay. okay. As a two-year-old. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even better. Even better. Verstappen drove quad bikes around the family garden. Also, family garden, I'm sorry, he totally would have gone to Carnegie Mellon. A couple of years after an incident involving one of his bikes, his parents took him to the karting track near their home in Gank. Oh. Age four. He oh, saw a yeah. younger friend karting and asked his father if he could have a cart. Verstappen's father bought him a go-kart when he was four and a half. See, that's where the money comes in. Like, I wanted a fucking go-kart at five as well. Just didn't get one. I know. That's, yeah. It's a very rich sport. I mean, it wouldn't have worked out for me anyways. I'm too big. Still. I could have at it least. It could have stunted your growth. I could have been a karting champ. They might have they um, made engineered moves. you. Yeah. yeah. Verstappen won his first race at age seven. Oh, my God. That was a year before Lewis was in the cart. Yeah, crazy. And I think he won race at 17 in Formula One. I I keep sending you down these rabbit holes. I apologize. But I think he might be the youngest F1 race winner. Mm. Formula One career. Is Max the youngest Age 17 driver? years and three days. Verstappen was the youngest person in history to, partici- to participate in a Formula One race weekend. Oh, wow. Became the youngest driver to start a world championship race. Youngest world champion was Sebastian Vettel. Vettel. Vettel at 23 years old. Uh, Then Lewis at 23, 300 days. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's all. Oh, youngest F1 race winner, which is different than world champion, is Max at 18. 18 won his first race. 18 years, 228 days. Oh, my Lord. Wow. Can you imagine? At 18, you were, well, fuck, you were doing the same thing, getting them trophies. <laughs> I don't even know why I asked that. Accumulating like, some rings. Yeah, I was like asking, I was asking you to stretch your mind and imagine. You didn't even need to. I had already had two rings by then. 18. Yeah, you already ringed up. Yeah. But being in the number one <laughs> sport in the whole world yeah. with the best adult drivers yeah. in the world. I'm surprised you don't have more mixed feelings around F1 because you love it so much because driving, come on. Mm, yeah. And Drive to Survive is a good show. Mm-hmm. But it is for privileged kids. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so yeah, I'm surprised yeah. you're like... Yeah. Um, of course, Lewis wasn't privileged. Exactly. That, But, but that's but why But he also that got story. a ton of um, support pretty early on, which yeah. was helpful. 
Which and is, he, he did have a dad who got him a cart, ultimately. Yeah. As, uh, not privileged as he was. Yeah. That would have cut him to my dad's Corvette money. He had a red Corvette. He, he can't <laughs> part with that. No, 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 no. He's got ladies to meet. <laughs> but, oh, right. So it's kind of privileged, yet I like it. That's yeah, the quandary. Yeah, and it doesn't, it's not like you necessarily to be attracted to that. I agree. But if you look at the drivers, they're kind of rough and ragged. Like they are representing the most high class expensive sport ever. But like when you look at polo players, they look like fucking polo players when they're off the horse. Yeah. They're in collared shit and they're acting prim and proper and they're at these outdoor parties. You know, Danny's on a farm fucking riding dirt bikes. Yeah. But Danny, to me, is an exception. He's like, funny. Yeah, and Max, though, his fucking tail number on his jet is DTF. There's no polo player or Carnegie Mellon fucking dean of admissions that would have DTF as their tail number on their plane. Yes, that's true. So that's what gets me. Like, I kind of like those guys. Now, the, the brass of the sport and that kind of stuff can be a little triggering to me. But the guys themselves are just kind of maniac kids. I guess you know? that's true. That's true. Most of them have pretty darn good personalities. Like Vettel, who you just mentioned, he's so funny and likable. I don't personally think if you're rich, you have a bad personality, or if you grew up with privilege, you have a bad personality. But I know just it's triggering for you. It is. It is. Yep. But you're overcoming it, obviously. Yeah, and also it is a meritocracy. So it's like yep. their dad can't, well, some well, of their dads buy a It's a meritocracy man. within a group, though. That's true. Ultimately, they have to perform. I guess I just mean in the sports world of all of them. Mm-hmm. And I love F1. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. I think that's like kind of the, the beauty of the NBA or something. Yeah. Or maybe even the NFL, you could oh, say. Oh, yeah. like, Baseball. It, all of our sports. Yeah. And it's um, and I stand here saying that like if Lincoln expressed interest in carding, she'd have a, a cart tomorrow. Yeah. And I'd spend all my time with her. And if she got great, some young Dax would be like, well, fuck that bitch. She... Was, it was all given to her. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it should be like, fuck those guys. It's just as a sport, when mm-hmm. you look at it, like when I think about my respect level for the whole thing, yeah. I guess I just have more of a soft spot for the ones where like people could really fucking rise above. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. I love that. But I love that one. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Love <laughs> you.